Well, a couple weeks ago, our family went on a journey. And I'm not on Facebook, but if I was, I might have put this up on my wall, this little picture. My, uh, my daughters took that. This is a sunset um, over, the, over the gulf down in Florida. And again, we just had my little phone, you know, and we had a, what, a fifth grader taking, taking the shot. But even if we had the best equipment in the world, you couldn't have captured that moment. How many of you have ever seen the sunset on a, on, over the ocean, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's something I would encourage everybody, find out how you can do that and, and, and do it. The seabirds, I mean, it filled the skies. And, and the crabs and these tortoises that were roaming the land. And the waters were just teeming with life. And the colors, the colors blended perfectly from horizon to horizon. And there were sounds of gulls and wind and waves that couldn't have been more, more harmonious. And you could smell a freshness in the air. You could taste the sea salt on your lips. And I felt like I just got to go find a tree and hug it, you know? It's, Oh, right? Well, as I'm soaking all this in, there was a soundtrack that started playing in my head. There's a guy named Chris Tomlin. He's got this song called, You Do All Things Well. And I'm looking at this, and I'm just thinking, boy, God, you do all things well. You know, in this song, he sings to the mountain maker and the ocean tamer. He sings to the star creator and the wind breather. And he sings to this God, and this God who just said, let there be was. And as if God can be trusted, if the same God can be trusted, the best is yet to come. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I love quoting C.S. Lewis. He's so quotable. I put this in your notes because this is going to, for me, it required a couple readings, but here's, here, here's a one-time shot at it. At present, he writes, we're on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. We discern a freshness and a purity of the morning but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we'll get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we'll put on its full glory or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Wish I could write like that, man. I think this is what he's saying. He says, if you see a sunrise or a sunset that is free from any of us messing it up, if you see that, you observe something glorious. And as glorious as the sunset is, something even more glorious awaits the faithful in an age to come, in an age when we are as in sync with the sunset as the sun itself. Think about that. If God can be trusted, there's going to be a day when the faithful's lives are as in sync with the sunset as the sun itself. How do you get from here to there? You get there one voluntary step of obedience at a time. The path from where we are to where we most want to be, it's a journey. It's a journey. And no one does a better job of explaining this than a first century physician named Luke. We've been looking at his writings for the last five weeks. And what we're going to do today, we're going to zero in on this journey. Luke does a great job with this. 
Here's a quote I came across from a guy who he just, all he does really is study the Bible. And he says this, Craig Blomberg, Luke, more than any other gospel, offers a paradigm for viewing the Christian life as a journey or a pilgrimage following in the way of Jesus. And again, we've been exploring his writings for the last five weeks. And what we're going to do today, we're going to zero in on this journey, specifically a journey that Jesus took from Galilee to Jerusalem. And I tell you, Luke doesn't paint this journey as just a road trip with the guys. Jesus knows what's waiting for him at the end of this journey. And we see that before he begins the journey, Jesus says this to his followers. This is found in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Hey, while we're opening up our Bibles, I want to say a couple things. First, I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack of them at those tables. They're there for you. Please take one. It's a gift. Um, also want to let you know today is a great day open up your Bible and to actually follow along, whether it's a handheld device or, or opening up a book. We're going to just look at this journey. It starts in Luke 9. Well, let's work our way through as best we can. So here's what it says. Before Jesus starts this journey, this is out of Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus knows what's at the end of the journey. He says this, The Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day... He's going to be raised. All right, so Jesus knows. He knows what's waiting for him. He knows at the end of this journey, there's a cross. And yet, he chose to walk this path of voluntary obedience. And as he begins this journey, and it's roughly the journey, distance is about the same from Lake Malax to here. So that's about the journey we're talking about. As he begins this journey, he set out with a level of determination that our English translators have trouble with. The Bible um, is a collection of documents, and this document, Luke's writing, was originally written in Greek. So the English translators are trying to translate this, and here's, here's what they translate in Luke 9, uh, 51. As Jesus now sets out for Jerusalem, here's, here's, here's as best their translators can do to try to describe what Jesus was thinking at that time. Luke uh, 9, 51 in the NIV translation says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In the Amplified Version, they, they translate it, he steadfastly and determinedly set his face to Jerusalem. I love the message. It says, Jesus steeled himself for the journey. He knew it was coming. He knew it was at the end, and he was determined to walk this path. Now, in preparation for this week, I went back and I followed this journey. And I want to I encourage all of you to do that. I don't think I've ever left more on the cutting room floor than I had to do this week. You, you start in that journey, and it covers human existence. On this journey that Jesus takes, he encounters all these different people, different life stages, different issues, different circumstances, covering just about everything. Here's a partial listing. In, in, in the time between Jesus beginning this journey and the cross, here are some of the, the situations, circumstances that are addressed during this journey. You've got family, faith, work, healing, forgiveness, anxiety, retirement, prayer, giving, compassion, charity, racism, demons, service, discipleship, fear, boldness, preparation, observation, prophecy, outreach, divorce, remarriage, future, finances, temptation, and more. I, I made a note to self. I said, you know, someday, some year for Lent, let's just follow that journey. Let's just take one of these at a time as we get closer so I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to walk that journey. And there'll be all kinds of things that jump out to you as you take that journey. But as I did, I, I saw 
people faced with decisions. What are we going to do? Are we going to watch as Jesus passes us by? Or are we going to respond to what he says? Here's a question I'd encourage you to write down in the note. This is perhaps the most important question a human soul can ever ask. And I think it's a question that's begged in these scriptures. Can salvation be found on the sideline? Can you watch Jesus walk his path, do your own thing, and experience the salvation that God has for us? All right, let's take a look. On his journey towards the cross, Jesus encountered a host of people, each with their own unique situation and circumstance, and the way they responded to Jesus appears to have had eternal significance. Let me give you just a couple examples. Here's one from Luke 13. So Jesus starts the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. He says this, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages. This is out of Luke 13, starting with verse 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching, journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through a narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And we see example after example of what this looks like in particular situations. Here's just one example among many. This is uh, out of Luke 17, starting with verse 11. Luke 17, starting with verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, again on this journey, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. And when he did, he was met by 10 lepers. They stood at a distance. They lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. They went and they were cleansed. Then one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said, to the one, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. What language did Luke write in? Greek. Literally in Greek, that is, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. If that's what Jesus said, what, what are the implications for the nine who received an answer to their prayer and then went their own way? Bible doesn't spell it out. It leaves that question unanswered, at least there. Let's continue. Follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Luke 18, 18. A commandment-keeping ruler asked Jesus. This guy, he was keeping the commandments. We, we, he gives a whole list of them that he kept. And, and he, he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and come and follow me. And when the ruler heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. What does this encounter teach us about holding on to things, whether it's money or something else? What does this teach us about holding on to something when Jesus says, let go? That one's just kind of left there. Let's look at another encounter along the way. At this point on the journey, Jesus now, at this point, he's about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and he's reached a city called Jericho. Now, Jericho, even in Jesus' time, was an ancient, ancient city. And the original site where the city once stood in the time of Jesus was largely abandoned. The original site, largely abandoned. 
this account that we're about to read might have happened here in the old part of town. All right? So in the old part of town, we look at Luke 18, starting with verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd pass by, he inquired, what does this mean? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front said, shh. They they rebuked him, it says, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus did what? What does the scripture say? He stopped. When the blind man came near, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Does that phrase sound familiar? Literally in the Greek, what does it mean? Your faith has saved you. And look at this man's response. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him. As was the case in the Samaritan leper, the Greek text records Jesus literally saying, your faith has saved you. A blind man defies the pressure to conform to the crowd. He cries out to Jesus. He sets out to follow him. And the great physician heals not only his eyes, heals his soul. Jesus continues his journey towards the cross. And now in the newer part of town, he encounters a vertically challenged man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in a corrupt system. And and Jesus does what when he gets to Zacchaeus? He stops again. He stops, and after an exchange, Zacchaeus says to Jesus, right here, right now, I'll do what it takes to make things right. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today, salvation has come to your house. It's interesting to contrast this with the commandment-keeping rich guy who couldn't let go. All right, after this, Jesus departs from Jericho, continuing on the journey. And he begins the leg of the journey that we commemorate on Palm Sunday. In Luke 19, 28, we read these words. Luke 19, 28 says this. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when it says going up to Jerusalem, that's literal. It's it's literal. Jericho, which interestingly enough was known as the, quote, city of palms, is the eastern gateway to Jerusalem, and it is an uphill climb all the way. Jericho is one of, has one of the lowest elevations on the planet. You don't even reach sea level until you're about halfway to Jerusalem. It's mile after uphill mile through a barren and dangerous wilderness. And Jesus wouldn't have traveled the narrow, treacherous path alone. The Jewish Passover was coming, and that was a time when expectant pilgrims would converge on Jerusalem at Passover, hoping that this is the year that God sends the Savior. So they would be journeying along this this path as they commemorated God's great salvation of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And a new exodus was coming. Jesus knew it. And he knew that he himself was going to serve as the Passover lamb. As Jesus walked towards his sacrificial death, my mind goes here. It says in Luke 4, that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry. This happened probably about three years before this. And in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. Is it possible, since he was baptized in the Jordan, and this is by the Jordan, is it possible that Jesus passed the exact same spot where the devil said there's another path, an easier path, take this path. 
And is it possible that the devil whispered again, hey, remember my offer? That we don't know. I mean, that's speculation. The Bible doesn't say that. Here's what we do know. Jesus kept going. He continued his journey towards the cross. And when Jesus finally reached the top of the Mount of Olives, the view would have been breathtaking. There, glistening in the spring sun, was the holy city. And here's what happened next. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 35. Jesus at the top of this hill. They bring a donkey to Jesus, and as he rides along, they spread their cloaks on the road. His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. And they sang, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Shh, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these are silent, even the stones will cry out. Now, you know, imagine you're a Roman guard and you're watching this thing come down the hill. In, in our Bibles, it calls it the triumphal entry. They'd be like, was this a joke? This is a triumphal entry? Triumphal entry is our general coming down that hill and our general's on the white horse and our general's got his army behind him and our general's got his trumpets and banners. That's a triumphal entry. This is a parody. Got a nobody riding on a donkey followed by more nobodies throwing their coats on the ground. But for those with eyes to see, the rocks were crying out because it's Passover. And Jesus of Nazareth is a descendant of King David. And Jesus of Nazareth is coming from the east. And Jesus of Nazareth is riding on a donkey as the prophets foretold. And Jesus of Nazareth has performed the signs, the wonders that the prophet Isaiah predicted in Jesus, the ancient prophecies of God's chosen Savior were being fulfilled. And so people have been singing this, this song. Luke gives us a little verse of the song. That's from Psalm 118. And, it, and I've been told that that was a song that they would sing. They would sing every Passover. They would sing this song. And, and they would sing it. And, and, and look at, here's some more from Psalm 118. I went back and looked it up. Look at what the words were that they were singing every year, year after year as they came for the Passover. Could this be the year that God sends his Messiah? They sang, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look and triumph. And here's the line that Luke includes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you think they sang that with a little extra gusto this year? Was their little triumphal entry made their way down the hill? The people believed. Luke says this. Luke records this. Luke 19, 11. The people believed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They're like, this is it. And the crowd broke into their song. And while the crowd sings the truth, what does Jesus do? Luke 19, 41. When Jesus drew near the city, he wept. He wept. Now, Luke is known for his mastery of the Greek language. And he had several words that he could have used instead of, well, for this wept word. He had several words at his disposal to describe how Jesus reacted as he drew near the city. Luke chooses a vivid word to describe the tears that Jesus shed, a word that can be translated as wail. It's the same word that Luke later uses when Peter denies Jesus three times. And, and after denying him three times and realizing what he'd done, it says Jesus looked at him. 
And Luke says, Peter wept. Same word. Wow. Why does Jesus weep? A, a musician that I listen to a lot at Lent is a guy named Rich Mullins. And I think Rich Mullins sums it up well why Jesus wept. We were looking for heroes. He came looking for the lost. And we were searching for glory. And he showed us what? A cross. As Jesus drew near the city of Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, it was at hand. Jesus, he was going to take the fight right to the very gates of hell. He was going up against the power of sin and death itself. People are like, that's not what we want. Save us from Rome. That's what we want. Kick these guys out of Jerusalem. Hey, Jesus, save us from this corrupt temple establishment. Kick them out of the temple. Give us some good religious leaders. Jesus was off for them something better than they thought they wanted. I can imagine Jesus saying, hey, you think you want salvation from Rome? What happened last time I delivered Jerusalem into your hands? How'd that work out for you? What'd you do with that? Hey, you, you think you need new religious leaders? How long were you out of how long were you out of Egypt before you started worshiping a golden cow? Do, do you think it's these things, these structures? Do you think that's what you really need to be saved from? Or is there something deeper? Is there something in here? Is it in, internal? rather than external? Is there something you need to get saved from in here? Jesus, I believe, was offering something better than they thought they wanted. I'd encourage you to write this down. This will be a paradigm shift. For some, it'll be a great reminder for others. Take up your cross as an invitation. Take up your cross as an invitation. When Jesus rose from the dead, and he opened the eyes of believers to the scriptures. When the Holy Spirit descended on them, and then they went out and they began sharing all these things that they now knew, these things that they were experiencing, they called it good news. They said, we got to tell you the good news. What is good about, you got to give up everything. What is good about a cross? You know what? Nothing's good about a cross. Jesus himself, Jesus himself, it, the scripture says in Hebrews, he endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? For the joy set before him. To take up a cross is an invitation. It is not, the cross is not the end. <laughs> it is not God is some sick being who likes to see his people suffer. A, a cross that he invites us to, it's, it's, it's an invitation. Now, the cross of Jesus Christ very specific cross. The cross of Jesus Christ secured the eternal salvation of all who turn from sin and turn to him. That was Jesus' cross. You can't carry that cross. The cross you carry doesn't make you right with God. The cross you carry doesn't cleanse you of your sin. The, the, the cross you carry doesn't make it possible for a, a, a loving God to love you. That, that's, not, that's what Jesus' cross did. And he did that by grace. That was his cross. Our cross saves us from things that we need to be saved from. 
when we pick up our cross. When God asks us to pick up a cross of our own, it's almost always to save us from what we think we want. Again, C.S. Lewis says it much better than I can. C.S. Lewis says this. He goes, our Lord finds our desires. They aren't too strong. They're too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on, keep making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's us. Think about it. Will the nine leper guys, nine leper guys, nine leper guys get physical healing? Are they going to find what they're looking for now that they can get into the clubs? Or is there a deeper something that God wants to heal? Commandment-keeping rich guy, the one who couldn't embrace the prospect of parting with his wealth, will he find peace and security, meaning and fulfillment in the abundance of his possession? Or, Or does he need to get saved from the love of money? All right, enough throwing stones from glass houses. Personalize this. What are you holding on to? What am I holding on to? What are we holding on to? That Jesus would say, let go. Let it go. Now, before you answer that question, I want to look at one more example because this is an important related teaching here. And and it's one that's illustrated here up up in the front. This is out of Luke chapter 23, verse 32. We've been talking so far about people being asked to take up their cross. Hey, lay this down, lay this down, lay this down. Let's look at an example of someone who's not asked to take up the cross. They're enduring one. All right, let's take a look. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 32. Two others, as Jesus, now Jesus is at the cross, he's on the cross. Two others who were criminals, they were led away to be put to death with Jesus. One of the criminals railed at Jesus saying, hey, are you not the Christ? Save yourself, save us. And what did he mean by that? He meant, get me down from this cross right now. If you are God, you're a savior. What do saviors do? They save. Save me. Get me down from this cross. Get yourself down from this cross. That's what the first criminal says. And look at the contrast between that criminal and the other. The other rebuked him saying, don't you fear God? This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I truly, I tell you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. I've heard some people say, that criminal got off easy. He got off easy. Rich guy, Jesus tells rich guy, give up everything. Rich guy's got to live an entire life, entire life, you know, without his stuff. This guy, all he did, said, Jesus, remember me when I come to the kingdom. This guy didn't have it easier. If you're ever on a cross, you're enduring a cross, it's not easy to keep on keeping on. Arguably, it's harder to endure a cross you're on instead of to take a new one up. I'd encourage you to write that down. As hard as it is to take up a cross, it's often more difficult to trust Jesus when you're already enduring one. And I tell you, I have the utmost respect when I see a a young woman who longs to have children of her own, 
and, and that either hasn't come to pass yet or, or might not. And yet, instead of being bitter, she joyfully loves every kid in her life. What a powerful witness that is. I think of people I know personally here at our church who come around others and they pray for healing. We saw two miraculous healings last week. I'm hoping we can get some testimonies to that here in the upcoming future. We had two miraculous healings. And some of the people who were praying for the people who were miraculously healed haven't yet been healed themselves of things that they've asked for. They're enduring that cross, saying, God, I will be faithful. I will be joyful. I will pray for others, even as I'm waiting for the healing for myself that may come in this life or the next. I have the utmost respect for a young man, young woman, who while their friends are off doing everything else that their friends do, they're walking the path of Jesus. And they're enduring what feels like loneliness. And they're enduring what feels like I'm missing out on all the fun. And they're walking that path. And they're trusting God. I'm trusting you. I'm going to set this example. I have the utmost respect for you. You, you guys only know. Whether it's a cross that you're asked to take up or whether it's a cross that you're asked to endure, We sang that song earlier, Praise Like Fireworks. When you do that, that is praise like fireworks, you know? And it's so different than most people view Jesus. Most people view Jesus as parade Jesus. You watch him doing his thing with the cross, and yet wave your little, you know, whatever. Woohoo, Jesus, you're so good. You, you did that thing. And maybe he'll throw me candy once in a while from his little parade. And I can take my candy home, and I can go do what I want to do. The Jesus that history testifies to in every one of the accounts that have been verified, have gone under scrutiny, every one of those accounts testifies to cross Jesus. Cross Jesus. And here's what cross Jesus said on that journey to the cross. Luke 14, 27 through 33. He says, if you don't carry your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And then he offers that invitation. It's an invitation. He says, count the cost. You go ahead. Count the cost. Please count the cost because I don't want a bunch of people who are going to follow me and then flake. You know, count the cost in the front end. Look at what I'm asking you to lay down. Now look at what waits on the other side if you die to that and are resurrected to something else. Count that cost. Please count that cost. And fix your eyes not on the death, not on your martyrdom. Fix your eyes on the resurrection that's waiting for you. The the devil wants us to fix our eyes on our martyrdom. Oh, it's so hard. This cross is so heavy. That's what the devil wants us to fix our eyes. Jesus said, hey, every step is a step closer. Every step you follow me in voluntary obedience, every one of those steps is a step closer to the life you really want the life that you really want. You know, I think about Olympians. Why does an Olympian endure their training? I think about students. Why do they endure their studies? You know, think about a parent, a a, a woman who's pregnant. Why does she endure the pregnancy? For the joy that's set before them. That's why they do it. There's one last talk point 
that I encourage you to take a look at here. And I encourage you to write this down. Anything that God asks you to lay down, it's a trade-up. Anything that God asks you to lay down is a trade-up. The entrance to the kingdom of heaven, it's voluntary. You trade. You make the trade. It's voluntary. God will not force your compliance. He won't do it in this world life. He won't do it in the next. And that's why the decision needs to be made on this life. In heaven, there won't be any rebels. In heaven, there won't be any people who, who, who say, no, I'm, I'm going to say no to you on that one. So how does that work? How can you still have your free will then in heaven? It's because those who are in heaven have voluntarily said, I lay down all rights to my life, and I want the one that you're inviting me into. You're king. You're king. You know, I'll follow your way. So we want to give you a chance to respond to that today. We're going to close with a simple little chorus. I don't think we've done it here yet, but you'll catch on really fast. A simple little chorus that talks about, I'll run the race that you've called me to. I'll walk your path. And, and I, don't want, I want to encourage you to, to not sing the song, to respond in the song. And, and I want to let you know if you're new here, you've got freedom. If you want to just look at the words and soak those words in and say, yep, I do that right here, right now. I surrender all. I will walk your path. I will run your race. You have freedom to do that. If you want to just stand up and say, I'm going to be like that blind beggar guy. I don't care what anyone else says around me. I need this. And you just want to stand up and you just want to proclaim it. Well, the song's going on. Do that. You just got freedom here. But please respond. Please respond. Because it's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as Jill leads this song that your Holy Spirit would lead our hearts and our minds and our rebellion to the cross. Lord, there's some people, I'm I'm positive, they already know what you're asking them to lay down right now. There's some of us who it's just, we need to recommit today. It's yes to all, God, yes to all, whatever's coming. Holy Spirit, whatever it is that we need to lay down, bring it to our minds. Help us to count the cost and enable us to lay it down and to receive this invitation that will never be the same again if we do. Do this, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. to it. It's up to you. But you don't have to leave this place the same person. You can leave this place on a new path and we want to encourage you to take that. I can't tell you how long that path's going to be. It might be one step. It might be a thousand. I don't know. But what we do have is the example of Jesus. Even on that last leg to the cross, he fell. As he was carrying his own cross, he fell. And there was another person who came and was told to pick up that cross 
You're not alone in this. You think that story's in there by accident? It's for some of you right now, so you can know there's, you're not in this alone. God will walk with you. As best we can, we'll walk with you. You don't have to walk this alone or shoulder this alone. So we'd encourage you, if you'd like someone to stand with you even today and pray, there'll be people right there by that sign that says prayer. Or if there's anything else we can do to help you on the journey, we'd be glad to do that. Let's please stand. Let's pray a blessing as we go forth. Father, we thank you for this invitation called Holy Week that comes our way every year where we're invited to journey with you. And Lord, we pray that this year, more than any other, could be one where we really do journey with you, where you bring to mind all these things that that you would love to save us from. Help us not to see them as treasures. Help them to see us. Help us to see them for what they really are. And Lord, help us to seek the treasure that will not be stolen, that will not burn, that will not corrode, that no one can take from us. Help us to seek that treasure as we fix our eyes on the joy set before us. Bless us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope to see you on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. God bless you.